This podcast is brought to you by lineupmedia.fm. This is Baseball Outside the Box with Peter Caliendo. Innovative thoughts from baseball's best coaching minds from around the world. Brought to you by lineupmedia.fm. Now your host, former USA Baseball National Team coach, Peter Caliendo. Hello again, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Angles and Attitudes. As always, my partner, John. John, good evening. How you doing? Good evening, Mark. We're going to have a great one tonight. Well, we're switching gears for all of our loyal followers because we're going to talk some baseball today. We're going to toss the horse hide around, and we've got an expert and a great guest to help us with that. Um, where do I start? Instructor, coach, author, all-around great guy. We're really glad to be joined by Pete Caliendo. Pete, thanks for joining us, and welcome to the podcast. Hey, Peter. Mark, thank you. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. It's going to be a lot of fun, and uh, it's an honor to be on your show. Well, we appreciate that. So we're going to get the the nonsense of the guys not playing out of the way, and maybe we'll just do a PSA and say um, nobody knows why they're not playing, and, and I know the game is near and dear to your heart as it is to mine. And the bigger issue is, and we'll start out there, is they're destroying, potentially destroying the game for another generation of potential young players. And, I, and I'll turn it over to you, Coach. Yeah, you know, I, the thing I'm wondering about, and I've been watching the details, a lot of them, you know, when MLB Network's on, and they give you a lot of great information and trying to stay up with it. And one of the, it's a couple of difficult things I have a hard time with. And, you know, I get it. The players have certain things they need to do. So the, the owners, it's a business. I get all that. We're all in business, especially in baseball. But, you know, interesting enough, they set out 42 days without even meeting. Now I get the negotiations. I'm not a negotiator, but I, I think we have common sense. And we, we understand that, you know, the later you wait to the end, the more pressure you put on both parties. The problem is, those 42 days, you could have been doing a lot of things and hopefully gotten it done by now. Now that they're under pressure to get it done. And then my second concern is, and I know the players have a good heart and the owners understand it, but you know, it, again, business, what about the repercussions from all this? The, well, you know, I hate to use the word collateral damage, but you know, all the people in spring training that count on the income, all the vendors, the, the tickets, I mean, everybody at works outside the stadium, you know, again, it's affecting everybody. That's why I'm really hoping that they can really get this done. There's been some movement, and you saw, I think, last night, the deadline at 5 o'clock Monday, it looked like they were getting close to it, and then it stopped. Then all of a sudden, they fly out, you know, and then going to come back Thursday. I, I don't quite understand that. Maybe because we're not in the behind the scenes. I don't understand why you just can't continue to get it done. They just keep negotiating, keep talking. You know, they've canceled exactly right. games already. They've canceled games already. What do they mean? And this question is for both you and Mark, because I think I want to kind of be like the guy, you know, that's kind of just going to bounce it off both of you. But what do they mean, Peter and Mark, when there's deeper divisions of this, that why they are already canceled some of these uh, first six or seven games? I'll let you go first, coach. Okay. Um, I appreciate that. Well, first of all, if I can't, you know, because they canceled, okay, the, the first couple series may not be as, as rough, but you notice now they want to negotiate the money that they're going to lose. Now they just added another negotiation on top of it. Um, if it goes any further, and we're talking about 30, 40 games, um, now it gets really bad because how are you going to make up the money for that? Are you going to, you know, uh, you know, the owners I'm sure can make up 
the first two um, uh, series as far as money. I'm sure they can say, okay, we'll pay you for that. But after that, it's going to get tough to negotiate. So that's my concern there as we start to lose games. I think the other thing is, John, and, and the bolt on what Coach is talking about is the longer they go, there's a, a gamesmanship, I think, on the part of the owners that say, okay, well, I'll tell you what we'll do because the season doesn't have the normal 162-game integrity. We're going to go from six teams or eight teams, and we're going to go to 14 teams in the playoffs. And now right away, all of those advertising dollars for Fox and for MLB Network and all of those guys, TNT, that's driving more revenue, those dollars for advertising. That goes right in the owner's pocket. And I think that some of that, the players are pushing back, knowing that ownership is like, well, okay, we'll give it, like Coach said, we'll give it two weeks, we'll give it four weeks. Heck, it's cold in April. We lose money in April, especially in the Midwest, because nobody wants to go to the games and we're playing in front of 5,000 people on an April night where the wind chill is in the single digits. So we'll wait it out until uh, May, and then we'll go ahead and we'll bolt on an extra wild card or best two out of three. And instead of 12, we'll have 14 or 16 and we'll sell the advertising to that and we'll put money in our pockets, but come playoff time, the players aren't making any more money. Yeah. And if I could add, if you guys don't mind, uh, you know, again, I'll give credit to MLB network. Cause you know, they're in the, they got people there at the meetings, you know, they've got a lot of confidants that give them information. There's two things that are going to happen here. One, I, I don't remember the year. I think it was 94, 95, the last strike. Um, you know, they came back with the fans at last strike. Well, you know, you can credit Sammy Sosa and McGuire and, you know, and the home run, all that stuff. They kind of got the fans back into it. I'm not sure they, what they're going to have to get the fans back into it. Now, if the fans get upset, that's one. And the second one is, you know, players got to get ready. Now they need minimum. The science has shown minimum four weeks to get ready. That's minimum. Now, if, if that gets cut, I think eventually we're going to look at more injuries than we did last year if this continues. So they, you know, in the negotiations, I, I hope that they're talking about that because injuries are a huge part of this game. They're already large and we don't want them to get any worse. Great That's point. Great point. And, and again, you're, you could lose a year and, and, and we'll, we're going to, I'm going to make one more comment to John, because I want to get into the instruction of baseball and the joy of the game and, and that type of stuff. But for a guy like John, who's a White Sox fan, you've got a window of opportunity with a roster that you have that, you know, you got a shortened season, you got a COVID season. Now you've got a shortened season again, you're going to have angry and, and especially in a working class town like Chicago, it's going to take a while for that sting to wear off for those people right. who carry their lunch bucket to work and who haven't been working because of COVID to sit there and go, you guys fought for a, a $900,000 paycheck for a middle infielder who hits 220 and has an on-base percentage of just under 300. That doesn't get me excited to go to the ballpark unless you're now we got to be in September. We got to be in a pennant race. So I think that's yep. another dynamic for a, a fan like John who's waited for this team to rebuild and been patient. And now here's what happens. Yep. So I know I look at his face. He's just like, you're telling me something here, Mark, that I don't want to hear. I know it, but my heart, I don't want to believe it. So, right. so we're going to go in the other direction. We're going to talk about how it got started when you went to, to baseball camp and how that evolved into you being a, you know, an instructor at 17, 18 years old after just being in the camp at 12. Um, that's the stuff that we really want to talk about coach kind of 
unwind that story for us, if you would. Yeah, I'll give it to you as quick as possible, Mark. Um, you know, I st basically, I was like any other kid. I just loved baseball. I started, I started a little later, I think at eight or nine years old. And then I saw in Baseball Digest, this Mickey-owned baseball school, right? And, you know, my parents are from Italy, came over. You know, they didn't know a lot about the game, but they would do what they could if they saw that we really, my brother and I really loved something. You know, they didn't have a lot of funds, but they decided, okay, you like the baseball school. So at 14, I went there as a student. My parents drove me there. And interesting enough, when I got there, you know, I'm a Chicago kid and I got there and uh, I looked at the place and it, it's all cabins, all, a wooded area in the middle of nowhere, you know, Miller, Missouri, about, about uh, an hour and a half from Springfield, Missouri, about five hours, six hours from St. Louis. And I see these cabins, it's raining, it's a day off, so nobody's really there. Um, and then I see some of these different bugs that I've never, never seen before, right? Because you're in the middle of nowhere. You know, and I'm, I'm 14. I told my mom and dad, you know, I don't know if I want to stay. Well, you know what? You know, Italian parents, especially dads. Uh, I don't oh, for think sure, so. Pete. Yeah, we paid for this. You're staying. Um, you know, and obviously I stayed. And make a long story short, I ended up at 15 becoming a counselor, then an um, instructor at 17. And, I, you know, I got close. The, the owner kind of took me under his wing, you know, and brought me into the camp and I became instructor. And then at 21, I was actually the head of instructions for the 12 and under there. So it kind of, and that really got my career going because I had a couple people like Ken Rizzo, who was the owner and Dick Birmingham, who was my mentor since the age of 15, all the way till, you know, I was 50 some years old. Wow. That had to be something with Birmingham because you do bring them up in a lot of your articles and everything else like that. To, I mean, he was truly that first mentor for you, Pete, the Dick Birmingham. Yeah, you know what? He just, for some reason, he just took me under his wing and 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 it just snowballed from there. He always helped me constantly. I may travel the world with him eventually. It wasn't for I him. Think I think he saw a true passion out there about you, for sure. Yeah, and, and, and I, you know, I would have never gotten into international baseball if it wasn't for him. He took me on the first Team USA, you know, uh, squad, 16-year-old squad in 1990 to go overseas and compete. Um, you know, he could have picked anybody. I didn't have the experience yet, but I think he maybe saw something or he just liked me. And, you know, again, without a good mentor like that and, and great parents, it's really hard to, you know, stick in the game because financially there's not a lot of money. You're thinking, well, I love it. But at the same time, do I, you know, do I need to go somewhere else, you know, to make, make a career out of it? Right. Well, I think that the, the you hit on two things that are universal for success, but are greatly lacking in our society today. And that's a passion for what you want to do and great parents. And those all connect. And I, and I don't want to get off into, you know, some of that stuff again, because it sounds like we're preaching or whatever, but all the people that we've had on from the, you know, the Kenny McCuddens to uh, Bill Clement we had on the other day, Wayne Larravee and some of the other people we've had on, there's always that passion and there's those mentors or those people behind and parents and a family and you come from something that means something that you can always go back to and say, hey, if things aren't going right, you know, what will my dad tell me? What will my mom tell me? Well, my dad had to work two jobs or my mom, you know, did this or did that, got up early to make sure the lunches were. And, and if I can't take a couple extra ground balls, well, then I don't belong here. So, um, you know, those are the things that I think sometimes we're lacking too. And parents, uh, John and I coach hockey. And like I said, I played ball for a, a long time and parents don't appreciate that and, and say, Hey, you got to put the extra time in, you got to take the ground balls. And if you're not willing to do that, that's okay. But then we're not coming back. Right. Coach it either you do or you don't. 
Yeah, you know what? And I, I think you hit a great point because, you know, we do a lot of coaching seminars in the U.S., especially for volunteers. And I give volunteers a lot of credit. It's a lot easier to, to get paid to do something than it is to volunteer and spend a lot of hours doing it. They mean well. They're well-intended. But we try to give help them and educate them best as possible. We do it in the U.S. and around the world. And one of the things we talk about is it's really a three-pronged educational system. You know, the coach is there to kind of you know, give you guidelines, uh, help you a little bit with, you know, kind of keep you like a bowling alley, keep you in the lane a little bit, help you out. Um, then you got the parents, you know, they're part of the program, whether you like it or not. And I know coaches sometimes want to keep parents away from it. The problem is when you keep them away, that's when the problems happen. You're starting to see a shift in teaching nowadays and where you're seeing it now more, which you would have thought you'd never see it as at the high school level. A lot of high school coaches starting to say the same thing. You know, I need to bring the parents into this because they need to understand what I'm teaching, what I'm doing. If they understand it, and plus, if you're real confident as a coach, you know, like in our international trips, I have teams that travel the world. I have parents involved in our all our meetings. Why? Because I want them to be educated. And guess what? I'm talking to the kids, but I'm really talking to the parents. And if you're really good and understand, you know, what you're doing and you're confident, you should have no problem doing that. Now, once in a while, you may not reach a parent and that that happens but most of the time if you got them involved understanding what you're trying to accomplish um, they're going to be on board and then the last part is what you talked about which is critical you have to put the onus on the player you know um, a lot of volunteers only have one two practices you know not everybody has travel teams not everybody practices all year round you know so now you got to put the onus on the player that if you want to get better if you want to start if you want to you know hit better feel better throw better you don't want to make as many errors because you're going to make errors right we all know that in baseball it's a little different than most sports you're going to make errors probably more than most sports but you've got to get better at what you're doing so that means you've got to practice on your own take what you've learned and and work on your own so the onus really goes on the parent and the player and the parent could be part of that learning because you know how many times do we say look if your 10-year-old kid, 12-year-old kid goes home and it's summertime, play catch with him a little bit, right? Throw, roll him some ground balls. Hit him, you know, get a wiffle ball bat. Throw some wiffle balls. Who cares? You don't have to know much. And if you're the coach, you can show them some of the things that they can do at home that are very simple. You don't have to make it complicated. And that keeps the involvement going. It keeps the energy going. So I think that helps. You brought up some great points there, Mark. Peter, do you see different coaches? Because you've been all over from Europe, to, you know, everywhere. Do you see where different coaches work on the different skill set or do you see where a coach is bringing down the skill set with a player you know where you're like what's this guy doing you know he's taking this player in a different direction where he should be doing this I mean because you've been everywhere with this because I consider you an expertise do you see that with different coaches like with me and Mark it was about X's and O's with a hockey coach you got a motivating coach you got an X and O coach do you see this and try to correct it when you're doing these things yeah, we encourage, whether it's a country, a federation, or whether it's somebody in the U.S. running a baseball organization, we encourage coaches' education. Um, I think that's mandatory. It needs to be mandatory. If, you know, if you're going to, if you're, as a coach, yes, because you're going to see different people teaching different things. How do we teach normally? We teach how we did it, possibly, right? Well, that's not necessarily, if I taught kids how I did it, I'd ruin, an example, in throwing, I would ruin their arms because I didn't throw correctly. So we have to have an understanding of the basic fundamentals. So we're all on the same page. And that's what I'm talking about. When you got that three-pronged system and it's going along well at, from a fundamental standpoint, then the parents are teaching the right thing. The player understands and the coach does the same thing. So I, we educate the coaches to make sure. And I think all leagues need to have programs where you're educating the coaches consistently, not just, you know, just don't throw out a one weekend program and say, oh, I did one, one day, I did a coaching clinic. That's enough. 
No, we got social media now. You got Zoom. You could have different classes, you know, where you're constantly educating coaches, even though they're volunteers, even if you spend a little time every month, you know, once a month having a Zoom meeting or, or every two months helping the coaches, that's just going to help the players more and more. So I, I think that, yeah, you're going to have different coaches sometimes teaching different things. But when you look at the real good countries, I think this is where we're really getting hurt in the game of baseball. In the U.S., um, we are playing a lot of games, okay? And there's nothing wrong with games. I think kids need, they need the games. They're fun, they're competitive. But what we need to do is make sure that at the younger levels, when we're talking 12 and under, there's many studies done by Australia, Canada, a lot of countries around the world. These are actual studies done that showing that the younger you are, the more practices you need. So if you're a 10 year old and you got 30 games, you need twice as many practices. Um, you know, if you look at the top countries in the world, and I get it, Florida, Texas and all that, they got an advantage because of the weather. So the Midwest tried to catch up on this, right? They said, oh, we got to play more games because the, the, you know, the, the Southern teams got a lot more games than, than we do. Problem is they forget that practice is important and they got to practice during the season also. Um, if they're not practicing during the season, they're losing the fundamentals. That's where injuries can happen. So we got to make sure that we're educating the coaches. We got to make sure that they're, they're constantly working on the fundamentals. And, and when you look at Cuba, Japan, Australia, Canada, um, some of the countries that are really doing some great things out there, even Latin America, you say, well, they play a lot of games. Yeah, but they practice twice as much as they play. So whatever that number may be, they practice twice as much at the younger ages. And I think that's an important factor. And we're getting, we're losing that. I think that's one of the reasons, just one reason we're starting to see more injuries in the game of baseball. That's a great point because um, we, as, as hockey guys, again, in, in USA certified, uh, USA hockey certified coaches, one of the things that the American development model that John's familiar with addressed from a hockey standpoint, like I see you nodding was, yeah. you know, uh, the Finns and the Swedes with a third of our population are turning out 30% more players that play at high levels that play in international competitions that win medals and play in the NHL. And what it came back down to is just what you said, and, and, and I'm not taking shots at parents, but you got uh, parents of eight-year-olds that want to play 60 games, and there's two kids on the team, right, John, that are really good. Yeah. Everybody else doesn't touch the puck. They go undefeated, but little Johnny scores eight goals every game, and nobody else gets the puck. And, and then when those kids are 10, little Johnny's still going to be good at 10. But Jimmy needed the practice to be oh. good at 10, and now right. he falls farther behind. So it's unfortunate that that model, and again, the investment, and now parents don't want to watch practice, and I understand that, but that's all part of the game. And, you know, we talk about that. I think the greatest note was in, um, you know, if you ask a parent, if you asked your kid to do multiplication tables once a month, how good would they be at multiplication if they did it once a month? Okay, yep. you just can't do that. You can't play piano for 10 minutes once a yep. month and expect we need to be that. right there. So so I'm gonna I'm gonna switch gears off of that. And my biggest beef right now is when our generation played, we were ball players. Your coach gave you, you took your glove and he said, Oh, you're going to left field. And you didn't go, Well, I'm a shortstop. Or he told you to go to second base and you go, Well, I'm a pitcher only, or I only play first base. And as the major league game develops into that four or five inning, the pitcher only gets to see the starting lineup twice 
and now you got a seventh inning guy and an eighth inning guy. How do you as a coach and a lover of the game get kids to go, you know, you got to learn how to run the bases. You got to learn how to take a lead off. You need to know how to come back. You know how to need to cut the base because not every time you're going to hit a home run, you got to stretch a single to a double because that's all part of the game, not just what you see on TV. So that's yeah, my that soapbox. That that worries me also because what they see on TV, the young, the coaches work with the young kids. Say, well, they're not butting, they're not stealing. Why are we doing it then? Well, you're doing it because at the high school and college level, they still do that. They still play the game because they're, you know, trying to win at higher levels. And also there's Finland. Oh, Finland mentioned them. They don't have to stress winning at those levels, at the really young levels. Kids, kids want to win. Nobody goes to with me. Mark and John, you there? There you yeah, are. We got you, Coach. I, I, yeah, we got you. I'll, 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 I'll start from there, from what uh, answer your question there. Um, sure. You know, and I agree with you because I was mentioning Norway, uh, Finland, you mentioned. You know, a lot of these countries. You watch them in the Olympics. They've got more gold medals than China and the U.S. And, and the, the, one of the main reasons is that the young levels, they don't stress a lot of winning. Um, you know, kids, kids, look, we, it's all inherent, right? Kids go to the game. Nobody says, oh, I want to lose today. I'm trying to, not to emphasize it. We need to go back and emphasize the fundamentals, emphasize that as much. There are multiple uh, sport athletes at that age. Why? Because we have, a, we have what's called the windows of trainability between the ages of six to 12. If you don't work on athletic skills, look at hockey. Hockey gives you athletic skills, basketball, athletic skills. Baseball doesn't give you that. So that one, if you're working on multiple sports, that's going to help you as a baseball player too. If you also focus on the fundamentals and not worried about the positions you play, you've got a better chance of making it when you're in high school, because, you know, don't, look, I had no skills. I couldn't throw, couldn't field and couldn't hit. Figure that. And I, play college baseball and I'm being honest with you my if you were to grade my skill level it would be all average to below on all of those but I learned how to do it right the fundamentals and that allowed me to move and play any position you look at the general Japanese kid put him any any place and play outfield infield doesn't matter why because they can catch field and throw all right and now all of a sudden if you can do those you could also pitch so I'm with you. And I think that's how you get kids to understand. Again, we're back to education. You get parents to understand if, if kids are playing multiple positions, um, you don't know what they're going to be when they're going to be older. So don't lock them in in a position because that could hurt them from progressing. And the name of the game, at least in baseball, is long-term development. We want to make sure we keep the kids in the game long-term as much as possible, not short-term. Um, and emphasizing winning isn't going to help you. The result of winning comes from working on the fundamentals and having and knowing how to run a good practice. So I'm with you on all that. Peter, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, over the years, maybe I've had this stigmatism to watching all this. Is the Latin ball player, the Dominican player, uh, is it just a natural ability or because he's playing more, more far advanced than the American born kid? Or am I seeing, or is, am I wrong to say that? Well, they're a little bit more advanced, and I'll tell you why. A uh, few reasons. One, um, if you look at their body types athletically, they got great bodies. Um, you know, they're athletic looking. They're strong. 
they, they, at a young age, what do they do? They do what we you and I did. We, we played on our own, right? But they play all kinds of different things, whether it's stickball, soccer. I mean, they're just out doing stuff all the time, climbing trees, you know, running mountains uh, up and down hills. I mean, they're doing all kinds of things that kids used to do all the time. So one, they're already athletic, um, well-built. And, and two, they're, they're doing these things on their own with their young kids. And then three, add the part that they do practice a lot. Um, now, I'm not, I'm not going to try to, I'm not criticizing anybody. When I, I've been in the Dominican Republic, Cuba, a lot of places, they got good coaches. Um, but at the same time, you know, they don't have great fundamental coaches. Um, and what happens is it takes them a little longer to get the fundamentals done. That's why you see some injuries coming out of Latin America sometimes, because, you know, they're not working, they're, they're working on the fundamentals, but they're now just now starting to catch up on really what are the real solid fundamentals and what are the drills that you need to work on. But athletically, they're great. And then top it off, they got passion. You mentioned early at the beginning of the show, they love the game. They play it with a flair. They play it with fun. They, you know, and that's why they're able to deal with failure a little bit more because I think they, they've been failing so much on their own, right? Playing in the streets, playing at their own fields, and they don't play on great fields either. You know, we're always worried about, oh, we got to have a good field. We got to have a great bat. You know, we got to have a great glove, perfect baseballs. Well, that's not the case in Latin America all the time. And I think that's what all that in combination makes them really good players. And, and I think you see short term, sometimes those guys overachieve just on skill. And as they talk about, they grow into the game and the additional training um, they eat better when they come to this country, obviously, and all those other things. So that even further heightens their development as, as players then. You brought up. If, if you don't mind, real quick. Sorry, Mark. Sure. John, because I think I understand John's point. I was in Cuba nine times um, and I'll show you the difference. And in, in the Dominican Republic, you know, it's kind of like the Wild West. Everybody's doing their own thing, right? Their own development, different academies, different things. Right. It's getting better. U.S. same thing, right? Everybody's doing their own thing. We got different organizations, training, doing different training, as you mentioned. In Cuba, it's not like that. Now, realistically, what's amazing is there's only about 60 to 70,000 players in Cuba. Total, 11 million people. Look at all the players they got in the big leagues. Why, why are they so good? Because it's structured. It's organized. They, they do practice a lot, right? But it's run by the government. I'm not saying our government needs to run it, but it's run by the government. And they control everything and all the training is very similar, you know, the development, watch the Cuban players that come to the big leagues. They don't sign until they get a little bit older. Yes, because they defect later. Um, but at the same time, they're prepared for major league baseball. You know, you're a White Sox fan. I saw Breu since he was 18. Uh, you know, it didn't take a, 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 you know, a smart person to know that this guy's when he was, when he came to the big leagues, he was ready. Um, he didn't need any training. This guy could play flat out. And look what happened. So there's an example of, a country yeah. was well-developed. I, I appreciate that. And, and you brought up field. Yes. And I can remember growing up um, playing in, when I was really young, playing in Chicago. And you play on Park District fields. And you learned yes. to love the game. You know, you, it, it separated the men from the boys. You decided how much you loved the game by how many ground balls you took in the chest or whatever. And I remember, John, we would play on the only place that we could practice at times we'd practice in asphalt parking lots with a rubber coated. Yeah. With the rubber coated ball. And the first time yeah. the coach hit your ground ball, it was like a rocket. Cause that thing jumped <laughs> at you and you learned how to self-defense to get your hands in front of you and, and to be able to feel that. So there, that some of that's missing too. Cause you talk about, you know, and, and God love the parents and the guys who take care of the fields and everything else, but a kid walks out there and he's never seen any adversity 
and learning because every hop is true and, and all those other things. And eventually that's not exactly the way it's going to be. And especially for those, uh, you know, those, those kids in the Dominican or those kids in Cuba, like you said, um, they play it that way. But one other point that you made earlier um, as, as hockey coaches and skating instructors, it's very frustrating to ask a kid at six, you go like, you know, when you're playing little league, when you're, your knees are bent, your bottom down and your hands out in front of you and your, your, your head's forward. And the kid goes, well, I don't play baseball. And, and those are those reference points from an athletic standpoint to talk to a kid about a basketball player looks the same way in a defensive stance, the way a, a linebacker looks, the way a third baseman looks. But if you're not playing those games, I can't teach you or help you translate those other skills if all of a sudden you know, your mom at eight years old says, well, you're only a center and you can only play one position and you don't play those other positions and all those injuries you talk about because you're doing the same thing over and over again. Right, coach? Absolutely. I, you know, and it's uh, that Kenny McCutt and I have had many discussions about this. Um, on top of that, when you take hockey or any other sport, um, the kids are moving all the time, too. Right. Again, we're back to athleticism. They're getting athletic movement They're, You know, they have no problem when you know, taking a slap shot. When you got to take a slap shot, you guys know better than I do. You, what, I mean, you're almost on one foot, you know, and you're skating and you're right. trying to hit the puck. You know, all of a sudden you transfer that to baseball. Um, so kids that come from other sports and what you're talking about, the athletic position, have a much easier time adapting to that to get to that position because they understand it. Again, they're doing it in other sports and we, we're not transferring that to baseball. And I think that hurts sometimes. Are the kids uh, pretty much the students of the game that you go see, Peter? Are they pretty receptive to the constructive criticism of, hey, this is the way to do it? Or you know, is there an attitude involved? No, around the world, uh, kids are receptive because, you know, you're an American. You come in and all of a sudden, wow, there's an American here. It doesn't matter what you know. They, they're attentive. They want to, you know, they want to show you what they can do. They listen. Even in the U.S., I mean, you know, I always tell coaches, it depends on you, too. It depends what kind of coach you are. Um, you know, it, it's your responsibility as a coach to understand how to keep kids' attentions. And that's the problem with sometimes with volunteer coaches. And I feel sorry for them. That's why we do the training. I mean, think about it, put yourself in their positions. You got one or two coaches, you got 12 kids, you got uh, you know some bats, balls, and catchers equipment. You got to run a one an hour practice. You got some kids, high level skills, some a little bit less. And now you've got to organize a practice to make it fun for everybody. Not only fun, but they got to progress, right? Because everybody says, uh, oh, go out and have fun. You know, well, it's not that easy. Fun means, individually, I get better, right? And now if I was striking out, now I'm hitting a ground ball. Um, if I was not throwing strikes, now I'm throwing strikes. Now, as those players get better, they're going to have a little bit more fun. And eventually, like I said, winning will come, but we, we just don't need to stress it. So I think that, you know, again, I keep going back to the same thing because I'm, I, I'm big on it. I've been doing it for a lot of years. I think coaches' education is so critical because by educating coaches, you'll reach a lot more, you know, kids. No, that, that's a great point. And, and we've seen it in a lot of areas. Um, my son, you know, played baseball and, and baseball is what I grew up on because I was a city kid when I grew up. So hockey didn't come along until later till you went to the suburbs and you had supposedly had some money and you could afford to skate and, and do those types of things. But you're back at that, those 12 kids and being able to have three coaches to have three stations of four kids and one's wiffle balls and one's this and one's that, and there's 15 minutes and we're rotating again versus that, that parent coach who's got 12 kids and a brand new bucket of balls. And now he's like, okay, I got three kids engaged, the kids who are really good, but now it's the other nine kids that I have to bring in that that's the real challenge. So it's not only 
I see your point and, and appreciate it beyond belief is the, the guy's got to have some idea of the game, whether it's hockey or basketball or whatever, but being able to organize and run the practice to have that, you know, spend 10 minutes to have the sheet and we're going from here, from there. And, and that's, I don't think teaching is, is a lost art on the volunteer coach uh, because they just want to pour and go, Oh, I know how to hit and that. And it's not, it's how you present it. Right. Coach. Absolutely. And one of the phrases is, you know, the, the problem sometimes coaches have, I had it, you know, I made all the mistakes that we're talking about. And, and one of them is you talk too much and you don't do enough. Um, you know, if you're going to have young kids, you got to learn how to keep their attention. Um, there's a lot of ways to do that, obviously, but you've got to learn how to do that. And at the same time, they've got to be moving consistently. Kenny and I have had this talk, you know, you look at hockey, nothing against hockey practice, but you, I don't know anything about hockey, put me in on a hockey rink and I'll run a practice because they're always moving, right? I get them skating somehow. I'll figure something out. Baseball, right. they're not always moving. So we've got to figure out how do we keep them moving? You know, like you said, you're going to have stations, but you got to be careful. If you got three, four kids, that can get boring too, because you got four kids in a the station, they're standing around. I think sometimes we can put some responsibility to players by doing things together and keep them moving a little bit more. So it really is a, an art and that art needs to be taught. How do I keep the attention of these kids? And remember, most of the volunteers you know they they know the game you know because they watch it on tv at least they, you know the actual game itself but to get them to run a practice is not easy and you know that's the number one reason it's two reasons if you look at all the surveys two reasons why quit kids quit baseball by the age of 13 they don't like the coach and they don't like practice okay now we got to solve those two issues if everybody says and i don't believe in this everybody says well they got other things that they want to do wait a second if you love baseball and you're and you're having a good time at it, you're going to quit for something else. I don't think so, because if you really love it, you'll stay playing. The reason you quit is because you find something else that's a lot more fun because we haven't figured out how to make baseball more fun. We just say go out and have fun. That's not enough. So I think we need to work on that a little harder. The preparation, um, uh, Peter, I always used to tell when I was coaching, I always used to tell my uh, players, the practice is the homework. The game is the test. I would always tell them. So you really had to prepare a lot for all these different situations, correct? Absolutely. I mean, and the practice is where, you know, you get into it. And, you know, coaches need to, the other thing, they need to show energy, right? I mean, I know it's tough. You could have had a tough day at work, but you don't want to go into, into a practice not showing energy because it's not fair to the kids. If you show energy, they got energy, right? If you're moving around, if you're having fun with them, you know, and if you're asking them questions and you're high five, whatever you may be doing, you know, you keep them going and you're having your practice is organized and it's also organized to a point where it relates a little bit to the actual game situation because you got to make it competitive for kids too. You can't just run a practice on fundamentals. Sooner or later, that's going to get boring too. So, and here's the tough part about, I don't know about any other sport, but you also have to individualize some of the things they're doing because John might be having struggling something and throwing in one area, but Joe might be having another. So now you've got to challenge them differently or give them different drills. You can't be doing the same thing all the time. So it, it takes a lot of creativity in organizing a practice. And then you got to be prepared. That practice isn't going to run the way you want to run, want it to run all the time. You got to be able to adjust. You got to be able to make sure, Hey, what happens if 10 kids show up and you expect the 14? Um, but if eight kids show up, you got to be able to adjust. And, and sometimes when you see a practice, it's not going really great. Okay, let's stop. Do something else. Come back the next day or, or next practice and start with that. But don't keep hammering it because it's going to get boring if you just hammer that particular thing all the time. 
And that's one of the, the luxuries in hockey. You can tell the kids to take two laps and you spin them around <laughs> the ice twice. And what that, is, really that is, is coach going, all right, we got to pivot here. This is not working today. But it is amazing. You talk about that because the power of a Gatorade bottle or push-ups, you run a bunning drill and you put three targets out there and you tell the kid, the kid who hits the target the most gets a Gatorade or you run a drill. We used to run just long toss. And the last two guys who were the longest distance apart and, and kept consistently thrown, they got Gatorades. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, and I use the same long toss theory with teaching kids how to pass the puck in hockey. Exact thing. We're going to make five passes in a row. Then we're going to take two steps back. We're going to make five more passes. And if you miss a pass, it's five push-ups. And if you miss, you know, a pass again in your next round, it's 10. And automatically you get that click and kids, and it's just a little, like you said, coach, it's a little competitive thing. You've kind of turned the scoreboard on without actually putting the scoreboard on. And now the kids have made the, made it a game themselves and it, and it takes on a whole different look. Absolutely. We've used uh, baseball cards, I think for the last 30 years, you know, we give, and how about, you know, you say, well, kids don't pay attention. Of course they don't pay attention. They're, they're 10 years old, 11 years old. You got to get them interested. So they pay attention. So a lot of times we'll use it. You know, so let's, like you said, let's say something we're, we're doing something and, uh, a player does something really good. It might be the player that normally is not as good as everybody else. You say, hey, you know, Sean, great job. Here's a baseball card. Guess what? You just got everybody else's attention. But on the flip side, whether you use push-ups, which I think you have to explain when you're doing push-ups that it's good for you also, right? I mean, you're getting stronger. And the other thing you could do is we take the card away. Hey, you don't hustle. We take the card back. So we, but we do it in a fun way. You know, sometimes we get too serious, right? Like it's a penalty. No, we took it away just because you weren't listening. Now you got to work on your listening skills because the listening skills are really difficult. It's not that easy. No different than hustle. Everybody says, and I kind of disagree with this. And I know you may kind of shake your head a little bit. Everybody says, well, it's easy to hustle. Well, not really. Um, I, I think you got to get them, to, you got to train them to understand how to hustle also, because a lot of times you could yell hustle and they're not going to hustle. But if you, you know, if you bring them back in and ask them some questions, like, is that the fastest you could run? I mean, remember, they're 10 years old. You just challenged them, right? Oh, uh, I didn't think it was the fastest. Did you think it was the fastest? In other words, me, not me telling them. I'm going to ask them, is that the fastest you guys can run? Let me see the fastest. Go. Now they go. If you didn't like it, bring them back again. Now we start training them in the habit of hustling because we got to create that habit for them. You can't just yell, hustle, and then penalize them because they didn't. I get it when they get older things change but when they're young you got to make it fun for them and like you said mark it's got to be you got to have that competition in there and challenge them and something that's changing in the game which i, I don't know i use it as common sense because we've been doing it a long time and that is ask players questions mm -hmm. stop telling them everything um and i'll give you a great example um you mentioned Dominican players cuban players you know they can play the game on their own right they could think on their own a lot of players in the u.s we're, they're becoming robots, in my opinion, because the coach is dictating everything, how to do it, when to do it. Well, and a great example is, man, on first base, balls hit the left field. We want to tell everybody, you know, come on, you're coming to third or you're stopping at second. I question that. Why are you telling a 10-year-old that? Why shouldn't they be doing it on their own? Right. Because, you know, what? it's fun to make it, you know, competitive on your own and make that decision. You're going you're gonna to fail. Okay, you fail. You're going to learn from that failure. I'll give you a second one, and I'll close it with this number of outs we tell players all the time when they get on base sean two outs i question why we do that um why aren't we asking them the outs 
Now we're getting them more involved into the game because we're not the ones that need to know the outs only. They need to know it. So those are the things that I think those are just some small things, but those are the things that gets them more involved into the game. And I don't know about you, but I, when I was a kid, I loved playing the game on my own. That's why we went to the park. We made our own decisions. Then we made lineups. We made, we played the game. We argued at times, but we figured it out and we made decisions and that's how we got better as players. Last thing I want to ask you in in regards to this, before I take it back to Mark, uh, Peter in with Mark and I, over the years, if it was the 10 year old or the 17 year old or whatever, do the parents become what I'm going to say, the meddler with coach Caliendo? You know what? Um, I, I haven't had that. And I'll tell you why um, I, I go back to the educational part. I, I have parents as part of the, the process. In other words, they're, they're welcome to listen to anything. Now I get it. You're a volunteer coach. You don't feel confident, you know, in doing that because, you know, maybe you don't know as much as you, you, you think you should know, but once you get them involved a little bit, and I mean involved, they want to help you with practice. Great. Because I think that helps if you get parents that can help you, especially with the young kids. Sure. Um, but again, if you have them on the same page, the process just works a lot better. Um, so have we had parents that give you trouble? Absolutely. I mean, you're always going to have that. You always got the know-it-alls, no matter what, right? They know more than you do. And, and, and guess what? Something There's nothing wrong with admitting once in a while that you made a mistake. There's a better way to do it, right? Um, you know, I think great leaders are, are people that can that can, when they make a mistake, when they're not 100% sure of something, admit it, figure it out. Don't don't think you know it all. I've been in a game now, I guess in 40 plus years, and I'm still trying to figure out things. Um, you know, and I'm sure you guys are in the same boat. We're always trying to learn something. So parents, yeah, they can be a problem, but I think uh, if you work it the right way, I think they could be on your side also. I think that you made a great point earlier. It's just a matter of, letting them know what you're trying to do. And it's the same thing with the kids when you run a drill. Well, why are we doing this? Okay, well, here's how this is going to apply when we put it in a game. And you're talking about hustle before. And it's like, you know, again, you find a play in a game, you go, remember when we had two outs and and we were were out at first by a step and we would have scored a run and the inning would have kept going? That's when we talk about that hustle, maybe that extra little bit of juice you would have had going down the line. We beat that one out, the inning stays open and we score two or three more runs. But you're, as a coach, you're, you know, the kids like in practice, well, why are you telling me to hustle coach? Well, there was a perfect example of where that applies. I know it's boring in practice, but that's why we got to try to get that extra step or we talk about your lead offs or whatever the case may be in, in those areas. So, um, yeah, no, you're talking about playing as a kid. And first of all, I was a left-handed hitter and I threw right-handed. So, you know, nice. I praised my dad for not ever, because everybody said, oh, he's a left-handed hitter. He should throw left-handed or he's a right-handed thrower. He should bat right-handed. So my dad was a PE teacher and he was just like, leave him alone, let him find it. You know, that's the beauty of baseball. You can pick the same bat up, right, John? If you're a hockey yeah. player, the kid's got to figure out if he's a left-handed shot or a right-handed shot. And his parents spent $300 on a curved stick and <laughs> you see the kid cross hand because it's the wrong way for the kid. So he doesn't have to battle that. But my swing was born out of playing, John will know, in St. Rosalie's um, parking lot because we wouldn't have enough kids. So as a lefty, they made right field out. So yeah. I had to develop my swing to hit the ball the left yeah. center. It was closed, right field because right, I couldn't pull it and, it, and it actually made my swing better. And as I got older, 
made allowed me to use the entire field because I didn't feel as a left-handed hitter, I had to yank everything between first and second. But it's funny, like you talked about, Coach, so much of your development when you just rolled the balls out with nine guys or 10 guys and you pick five on five and away you went, right? Yeah, and we encourage coaches say, listen, if you got, uh, let's take the coaches that have three, four practices a week, maybe a little bit more advanced. You know, take a day and just let them play on their own. Don't do anything. Step back. And it doesn't have to be where pitchers throw. It could be throwing the ball up and hitting it because there's a lot of action. It could be whatever you want the game to be, but let them do it for the day and enjoy it because I think they'll get a lot more out of that. So I'm with you on that. I think uh, it can help kids a great deal. Even again, we go back to hockey for reference, but uh, with the Blackhawks and he's coming back tonight, uh, Duncan Keith to, to play uh, with uh, Edmonton tonight. But one of the comments he made while he was still with the Blackhawks was with the coaching staff, they had coached almost coached the fun out of the game because everything was so structured that they yep. took the individual skills of the players element out of it. If the puck's over here, I got to be over here and the, the creativity in the same way of, you know, and that's part of that. And we're going to have to save it for another time. But the analytics of being able then to teach a kid to be able to move the ball around the infield, because everybody knows that 95% of the time he hits the ball between first and second, and you'd be foolish not to put five fielders in that spot. And I know that's an entirely, that's a whole podcast in of itself. itself but right? again, those things about moving the ball around and, and being able to make the, make the defense defend you rather than the opposite in terms of you're trying to hit away from them. Yeah. And that's, again, we're back to getting the kids to play the game on their own. Right. I mean, making decisions when you've got it, when your players hitting a guy just hit a foul ball to the right side, depending where the pitch was at. And, you know, you, you expect players on their own and you want to teach them this move defensively to where you think he's going to hit the ball, right. Make a movement a little bit to the right, or we'll use videos. I'll show them how do you guys have dogs. I, you know, I've showed them where you put a ball on the ground and as you are about to kick the ball, right, what, what does the dog do? The dog anticipates your angle of your foot, and they're already moving in that area. They're anticipating that. So we got to train players or get them to understand how to do that because, again, playing on their own. So I, I tell them, I said, look, you make the decision if you're going to move right or left, uh, whatever it may be. And then if, the, if we need to make a change, we'll make a change. But you make that choice. And they're not always going to make the right choice, but neither am I. Um, so I think educating them in that I think helps them again playing the game on their own I want to see more of that Peter do you get called upon a lot from different organizations and different countries let alone like what's your schedule like here in 2022 or besides doing the baseball outside of the box and everything else uh, what does it look like for you in the upcoming months yeah, I've been lucky. Matter of fact, I just got back from Slovenia, Slovakia, and Croatia, um, where I, you know, help train some players and coaches. And at the same time, I get educated too because I see things they're doing, you know, and I learn things, which is great. So um, I try to keep my schedule a limit, but normally it's been, you know, because of COVID. Obviously, we've been down. Um, but in the last six months, I've probably been to about seven, six, seven countries. Um, you know, doing coaching programs and then working with players uh, any way we can. Sometimes, we, matter of fact, we have a big. Uh, uh, virtual Congress coming up right now in Canada with B BC Baseball, which is a Vancouver, Canada program. Uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, we got 20 speakers virtually talking wow. to coaches, over 200 coaches online wow. about education, you know, and, and we have different experts from around the world uh, on the calls. So, yeah, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of people that want the information. Now, they could also get it, right? We got a lot of social media, a lot of great things on social media. You just have to filter through 
what's good and what's bad. All right. So since I'm the baseball nerd, I get the last question this time, John. All right. All right. Normally we give want, it to the I goalie. I want to say something before you get the last question. To him. Go right ahead. Uh, I'm, uh, normally, like Mark's saying, I get the last question, but because the, the, you're the base. Listen, I just want to tell you, this was, uh, I was thrilled uh, when you said yes. And I got to tell you, the night I met you at the Hall of Fame, somebody comes up and goes, do you know you just said hello to Pete Caliendo? I go, yeah, I know. I go, I can't believe it. There were so many Blackhawks there that you were there. So I was in the midst of all these people. But Pete, I got to tell you, thank you so much. I'm really excited about Mark's last question. You are an inspiration and an expertise. And uh, I want you back on here again. You're not, don't hide from me in Hoffman Estates because I'll be calling you again and stalking you. But I'll let my friend Mark here, my partner Mark, Thank do you. call. And uh, this was this was fantastic, man. I want more, so I'm going to give thank it to Mark. But thank you, thank you, John. And and then I really appreciate it. it's very nice. And and the other thing is, what maybe like if we talked about off the air, maybe we'll do that one of these at one of the Italian restaurants. For sure, I'm I all know for a lot it. of these guys. Don't worry. We're all for it. Yeah, but John's been promised me a, a free meal. We're on podcast number 49, and I still haven't gotten it. So be careful for what you wish, Coach. But um, no, and, and to John's point, and, and thank you. And, and uh, again, I could just keep going, but you've been great with your time. But the question that I have is, um, you know, you talk about the kids developing and doing their own things. And it, it, for me, and you may disagree, and that's why we're going to roll this out, to watch a kid on ESPN with Stanford across his chest playing at one of the most prestigious academic universities in the nation, and he's wearing a wristband or a waistband with the plays to explain to him what to do. When you just got done telling me when the, the eight-year-old or the 10-year-old gets a first base, he should be the guy to tell you how many outs there are. How does... How does that sit with you, uh, old school guy? Great point. You know what? And you would think that I'm old school, but I'm also, you know, the reason I started the podcast, Baseball Outside the Box, because I've always told coaches, you got to think outside of what you're trying to do. And don't always, you know, we, we want to learn from other coaches, right? Um, and I'm all for it. You can pick up information, but also you got to be creative and come up with new ideas. You know, the one about number of outs, nobody taught me that. That was something I just thought about. Is that the best way to do it? No, I decided to change the way I do things. And so when it comes to, there's a lot of changes in the game that I don't mind. And, that, but there's some that, you know, I'm still thinking about and I could be swayed, but I'm not in favor of the wristband because again, I don't think you're teaching, but at the same time, when you're sitting in Stanford and you're the college coach, and you got to minimize mistakes because you, you know your goal is to win, um, and if you don't win, you don't have a job. Um, then I could start to understand why they're trying to do that because it, and and maybe it speeds up the game a little bit. I'm not sure that that's a possibility. You know the communication and all that. Do I use the bands? No. Um, am I a big fan of it? No. But I certainly understand the flip side of it. I don't know if I answered that, but. No, you know, because I looked at it, you know, and I see because obviously they're on because of the high visibility of the programs, Vandy and Stanford and some of those guys. And those guys do have those wristbands. Now, if we can, I give you that and you, you open up my eyes again. So there is a learning here for me that if we speed up the the guy putting the fingers down three times and the pitcher shaking them off or having to look at the coach and then the coach right. gives it to the catcher and the catcher brings it out and the kid goes, eh, I'm not sure. And we run that cycle again. That maybe bringing that flow to the game. Um, I, I see it differently now and I'll have a different uh, look 
when the but, College World Series is on ESPN, uh, you know, come in June. Yeah, and I'm not sure the bands were brought in because to speed up the game. That's just something I'm thinking about, that, that it does that. I don't know if that was their intention, uh, but I know I got to believe that their intention was to minimize mistakes. Um, and, and because the fact that, you know, you got the band, boom, you know, right away, make the call, it's done. Um, so, well, let's see, you know, again, uh, here's what I do believe. When I said earlier, the young kids, the better we get them to make some decisions, make more mistakes. Michael Jordan said the reason he was so successful is because he made millions of mistakes when he was young. Right. Um, well, the more we can do that and, uh, and let kids understand that making mistakes are part of the game. It's a learning experience. Learn from it. The more we could do that, the better players we're going to have. That's why we're having more Latin players also, because they play the game on their own. They know how to play the game on their own. And I'm afraid that if we continue down this path, not that I want Latin players, but you also want American players playing the game too. And American kids got to wake up and say, you know, I got to get smarter when it comes to, to the game. I got to understand the game. I got to watch it more. I got to watch why they do certain things on, on television. I got to ask questions. I got to get better because the smarter player eventually is going to peak and they're the ones who are going to be successful because you guys all know this and God bless you for coaching two sports. I can't, I'm a, I have a hard time coaching one sport. Um, but you know that at the higher levels, the player that, that's smarter is going to be more successful because the talent level's there, right? Now it's the one that's smarter, got more passion and puts in more time. That is the best way to close this coach. As John said, thank you very much. Thank you. Um, Thank great you great so with much. your time, and we will hold you to coming back real soon, and we'll see you around the ballpark really soon. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. I'll be on any time you want. This was a lot of fun, man. It was lots of fun. Thank you. Stay well, Coach. Thanks. Bye, this has been Baseball Outside the Box with Peter Caliendo. Listen online at BaseballOutsideTheBox.com and subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and all major podcast outlets. Join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter. Get all of our podcasts now at lineupmedia.fm. This podcast was a presentation of lineupmedia.fm.